0: Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today to be speaking to the author of a fascinating book published by Cambridge University Press titled Royal Justice and the Making of the Tudor Commonwealth, 1485 to 1547, which gives us a really interesting view of this period of British history, helping us perhaps understand more holistically and with more nuance kind of what's actually happening at the beginning of the Tudor period that sets up so much in terms of the relationship of the monarchy in terms of law in terms of politics and going forward and maybe this isn't where we tend to focus our attention um, but as Dr Laura Flanagan demonstrates in this book there's some interesting stuff here so Laura thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to reveal it to us.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's really nice to have a chance to sort of uh, talk about the book and reflect on it um, at the end of sort of six or seven years of research. So Mm. thank you. Well, in fact, I'd like to take you back to the beginning
0: of that time as our starting point. Can you introduce yourself a little bit and explain why you even began this project in the first place?
1: Yeah, I mean, at the moment, I'm a researcher in medieval and early modern English history based at St. John's College in Oxford. Um, I have studied previously history degrees at the University of York, and I did a PhD in sort of the subject of this book, Early Tudor Justice at Cambridge. So really, that PhD thesis was the basis for this book, um, meaning I wrote it for a couple of reasons Uh, intellectually, There was certainly, I felt, more research to do after the PhD, and there was, in my mind, a gap in the scholarship for, um, as you sort of set out, a a more social history of Tudor government, and especially early Tudor government. Um, I should say also, practically and career-wise, a monograph was the, the logical next step for me as now an early career researcher. Um, so so a couple of reasons, but the intellectual ones uh, were definitely the main ones.
0: Mm. No, I think that makes sense. There's never one reason to go into a no. book. Or if there is, I don't know if anyone actually would finish it. <laughs> you <laughs> often need more than one to get through it. Mm. So... Given that background, then, um, I'd love to dive into this book that, as you mentioned, kind of has gone through a number of stages and has taken a lot of your time. So if you can help us sort of join you in this investigation by starting off kind of really at the conceptual beginning, when we use the word justice and we're talking about sort of 15th, 16th century England, what do we actually mean by the word justice? And was there even kind of one
1: understanding of it? I mean, that's a great question. And in many ways, that was absolutely where I sort of started this project. As a master's student, I was really interested in political theory in 15th and 16th century England. You know, why does politics work? Why did politics work the way it did? And did anybody really agree about how it should work? Was there such a thing as a commonplace view? In many ways, justice seems like the most commonplace political ideology of this period. Um, broadly, it encompassed the idea that everybody should have his own. So people of particular social status had particular sort of property associated and appropriate to that. Um, and everybody should should sort of have that status by, by design and by nature. Um, and it also covered various moral norms for how people should behave towards one another. So doing justice broadly meant maintaining peace, maintaining the status quo, especially in things like landholding, as I'm sure sure we'll go on to discuss. Um, So that overall theory of justice as a kind of governing principle was sort of agreed upon by everyone. You know, monarchs swore to it at their coronation. Political treatise writers sort of centered it in their their write-ups of how politics worked. But what I found as I was kind of getting into this research is that putting justice into practice, sort of doing justice, was the issue. Um, You know, who ought to pass justice? Who were the worthy beneficiaries? What codes and precedents should be taken into account? All of these questions were sort of up in the air. Um, And this was despite the fact that, you know, the English legal system had become quite expansive and by this point was quite old. So the idea was sort of broadly accepted by everyone, but I don't think there was a unified understanding about how justice should be done.
0: Hmm. Which is a really interesting place to start um, and kind of keep with us, I think, as we discuss um, what sorts of structures were used and developed to implement justice in the period. Um, Starting, I guess, not with the supply side, not kind of what are the courts and what are the laws, but more, I guess, on the demand piece of this because, you know, you can have all the courts you want, but if no one turns up to them, It's not that interesting a story. So why was there increased demand for royal justice, for some sort of system, some sort of implementation of all of this in the early Tudor period?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked, um, because you're right, that really there's a difference between supply and demand. And I think historians have typically been interested in that supply side. You know, these courts exist, they do things. But we we kind of take for granted the fact that in order for them to kind of function, leave records behind for us, people had to be turning up exactly as you said. Um, And I was specifically interested in why does royal justice start to emerge as its kind of own jurisdiction um, in the early Tudor period? Now, there had always been demand for the king to personally intervene in what were ultimately civil disputes between private individuals, so neighbours falling out of neighbours, um, not criminal cases, but cases about land or about money. Um, and Subjects with the requisite resources could seek the king out wherever he was and submit their complaints. So we know from some of the records of the earlier 15th century that Henry V was taking petitions and sending instructions to his ministers while off besieging castles in France. So it's difficult to talk purely in terms of increased demand. It is quite hard. I mean, there's a difference in the, in, the, in the availability of records, I suppose. But I do think the circumstances of the 15th century gave rise to more grievances that were likely to go to the king and begot more accessible royal justice. So, of course, the 15th century is an incredibly turbulent time in English history, the civil conflict that took place in its back half really unsettled relationships. And on the ground in the localities, landholders might choose their side in the Wars of the Roses in allegiance with their magnate masters and in opposition to neighbours of whom they already had some kind of feud. If they lost, they might lose their property. So you can see how opportunism emerges and a lot of what had been undone can only be fixed by the king. And some of this also comes from the increasing sort of sluggishness or perceived sluggishness of the existing legal system. You know, it's delayed or it's not always functioning or it's corruptible. So there's a, a, a sort of confluence of factors, I suppose. And another is the high turnover in monarchs, which made the visibility of royal justice from their side more important. I mean, here we're beginning to into supply, but you can see how... If a king wants to be seen as a good governor, it makes sense to sort of emphasize his willingness to do justice. So, you know, to summarize, you know, increased opportunism, increased conflict over things like land and money, problems of the existing legal system that make a sort of new system um, possible and, uh, you know, appealing and, you know, the willingness of kings to actually engage more regularly in what I think was already happening. But they, you know, these two things go hand in hand. I think to increase demand and supply at the same time. Mm. No, that that makes a lot of sense,
0: particularly given, as you said, the kind of political turmoil um, immediately mm-hmm. before the Tudor period. Um, if we kind of continue this straying into the supply side, uh, in the answers you've given us so far, we've mentioned the fact that obviously royal courts, royal justice, is not created out of nothing in mm. this period but that there is something different happening. Um, and in the book, you have a great phrase, quote, qualitatively and structurally different to describe the courts in this period to what existed but was different before that. So can you sort of trace for us what those qualitative and structural differences are?
1: Sure. I mean, as I said, you know, we knew that people were approaching the king for justice already. So what is different about what the early Tudors are doing? Um by the courts I was talking about, I was referring specifically to what I term and what other historians term the concilia courts. So these are tribunals which were originally sort of committees of the main royal council, the king's main council. Um which may or may not at various times have been more or less formal. And under the Tudors, they become more discrete institutions. So they start acting and sitting separately from the main council. Now, much of the broader legal system, the common law courts at Westminster, for example, remained the same. But these conciliar courts represent something of an early Tudor development. That's what I'm sort of arguing Um, So royal councils giving justice in a kind of structural way was not completely new. 14th and 15th century councils had set aside time in their weekly schedule to hear petitions. They'd even sometimes been ordered to prioritise petitions of poor suitors, which I think is something we'll come back to discuss as particularly relevant to conciliar justice. But under the early Tudor kings, this sort of informal function of the council becomes more formalized. So in the 1490s, they gain clearer and more regular records. In the early 16th century, their sort of bench of judges becomes more routine. It's the same people working all the time. By the middle of the 16th century, they're sat at Westminster instead of following the king around. So That's sort of what I mean by that in terms of quality of what they're doing, it's much more rigorous, it's much more regular. And in terms of structure, similarly, there there kind of is a sort of structure on record where there hadn't really been before. So it's about formalization, really, which is something we already associate with the early Tudors, at least in terms of centralization of government. So my work is only kind of adding a new strand to that picture. Well, but an important strand. So Mm.
0: (laughs) thank you for explaining kind of the broad contours of supply and demand. Can we talk more about the Court of Requests? Um, What actually is it and why is it so useful to focus on um, for the book?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the Court of Requests has essentially been the centre of all of this research for me. So when I talk about conciliar courts, the Court of Requests is one of them, but I think it is one of the lesser known. Um, the others being the more notorious Court of Star Chamber, which in this period becomes famous for being the court where, you know, noblemen might sue out their cases before the king. And the others are provincial councils. So there's one sat up in the north of England, usually in York, and there's another in the Welsh marches, these sort of come and go in this period. But the Court of Requests is, you know, the archetype of what I've just discussed. It was part of the main royal council with the king. There's initial references to it in the reign of Richard III, um, a sort of clerk of requests, a council of requests. And then under the early Tudors, it becomes its own court with its own records and increasingly kind of formalized. Um, I mean, I work on it because, you know, when I was talking earlier about my interest in thinking about political theory and commonplace ideas, this is a court that has a historical reputation for being a Court of Poor Men's Causes. This is what the Elizabethans said about it. Now, that, of course, you know, is wonderfully appealing to the historian who wants to examine the moments of contact between theoretically ordinary people, poor people potentially, and the crown in this period. So that's what drew me to it in the first place. That's why I ended up working on it. And I stayed working on it because archivally it has so much to offer. Um, It has an exceptionally rich, comprehensive archive. So for the period I work on, the court's beginnings in the sort of 1480s through to the end of Henry VIII's reign, we have a consistent series of books containing the court's orders, about 5,000 files of documents produced in its suit. So that includes petitions, answers, depositions, and there is some additional uncatalogued material that I got to work through as well. So that was more than enough for a PhD project lasting three years. But it also wasn't so much that I couldn't ultimately study all of it. So it made it possible to examine it from lots of different angles, from the institutional perspective, in terms of the identities of its litigants, and in the sense of this overall ethos of justice. So. Yeah, it's been a fantastic resource to work with for the last few years. Um, And I think it has a lot to offer us in terms of, as I said, this more social history, because it's well recorded and it has a, a, you know, a a large swathe of people using it and coming to the king. Mm. So.
0: Now that we have an understanding of kind of the broad context of what's happening, what court we're looking at, and it sounds like a fabulous archive, um, so thank you for that introduction to it. Let's get into then kind of the details of this more social history. Who was using the court of requests to ask for things? Where were they from? Were they actually poor people? What kinds Mm -hmm. of backgrounds did they have? Who were these people?
1: I mean, of course, all great questions. And a large part of my research and the book was sort of preoccupied with answering that. Are these really poor people? Um, Do we need to even change our definition of what we mean by poor? Um, What I found, and, and I should start with a kind of archival explanation for this, I spent a lot of time trying to map what I called the demography of this court. So the sort of social profile of its clients, now, because we have, as I said, thousands of petitions, which are first person and in English, and the court's own records of the cases it heard, there's a really good amount of information about how petitioners were labelling themselves and how they were being labelled by the court. So it allowed me to kind of create a fairly good picture, at least for those people who gave some description of themselves for who is actually you know, in this court. So what I found, and I, I usually like to address gender first, you know, what I found is that the majority of cases are being brought by men. Um, 20% of all cases were being brought by women women in some capacity, though, and that's quite high for courts of this kind in this period. Um, we don't always know much about these women, um, but very often they're described in terms of marital status. Um, but the highest proportion of them were widows and often quite poor widows, so that kind of begins to check that box for this sense that this might have been a court that helped poor people. Um, But in terms of the sort of male litigants with occupational labels, the largest category represented was sort of craftsmen and tradesmen. Now, that covers a huge number of people, um, people really artisan, labourers making clothes and caps and fabrics. Um, but also travelling tradesmen who are often quite poor. They make up about a quarter of litigants in this court for the period I work on. And then a pretty decent proportion, 15%, are clergymen, again, of all levels. Um, And then you have a sort of mixture of civic administrators and sort of landed gentry and royal servants and, and a much smaller group of professionals like lawyers. So the range is really, really interesting. And what I found as well was that compared to other courts of this nature, for example, Star Chamber, the one I already mentioned, um, members of some of these classes were likely to be from the lower end of those categories. So they were more likely to be the poorer priors or the poorer chapmen, rather than, you know, the elite. So, I mean, we have to kind of put some qualifiers on what we really mean by poor here especially because actually getting a petition in required money and it required time. Um, And I did find that as the court began to settle down at Westminster, that sort of poorer group of people out in the countryside were less likely to be served by it. But generally speaking, it has a, a very broad litigant base, perhaps broader than many of the other courts of its kind. So we can sort of be relatively positive in our assessment that it, it was quite socially diverse, and it was, you know, appealing to the poor. Um, But yeah, nice and broad, which was interesting.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, definitely an interesting finding.
1: Um, Thinking then
0: of kind of now that we know who these people are, and of course, the range of it, what were they trying to get from the court of requests? And why were they petitioning in the first place? And what was the process of making that petition like?
1: yeah, I mean, why why were people actually making this effort? I mean, that's a, that's a really important question because, as I've already said, this court is with the king. um, it's in the royal household. it's at the center of power. So why, for example, would a petitioner from Yorkshire or a petitioner from, you know the, the rural sort of Southwest travel all the way here to make a petition? A lot of the time, as they claimed in their petitions, they simply felt they had no other option. Now, how much this was true, it's it's hard to tell, but often they would recite in these petitions tales of attempting to get justice in their local court, attempting to get justice in the manor court, or from the mayor of their city, or from some uh, county session, and their point would be that Because their opponents were much wealthier or more powerful, they had been unable to make really any headway with this jurisdiction. And that was the sort of typical claim. So, this is where this sense of poverty, at least in a relative sense, starts to come into the rhetoric of making a petition here. Um, But what they were petitioning about was usually something that was really quite central to their life or their livelihood. You know, they're complaining often, most often, about the loss of land, the withholding of land by local opponents or forceful entry into lands by opponents who feel they have some claim to it. Usually at the heart of this is quite a technical uh, dispute about um, different forms of landholding, so a bequest of land versus a sort of release or a gift of that land If we're going to bring in some legal terminology. But before the court, it's framed as a quite straightforward you know, I'm being oppressed by my neighbour who can call up all of these people and enter into these lands. So the, the kind of the kind of petition they're making is, is really wrought with this sense of, if I don't get royal justice, which is the most authoritative justice I can get, you know, I will be impoverished forever. That's the kind of claim they're making. But the process of making a petition was not easy. Um, you might, if you're lucky, be on the route of the royal progress. The king might be coming through your town. You might have the opportunity to, if you could, get in within the sort of, you know, crowd on the street, get a petition in to somebody passing by one of the royal ministers. But otherwise, you would probably have to make that journey to somewhere you knew the king might be. So you can see how that requires a, a huge amount of knowledge. You have to have some sense of the king's itinerary, and this was published sometimes, and, you know, if you're in a town on his route, you would be visited by purveyors coming to gather up food and and resources for the household, so you'd have some warning. You'd have to actually produce a complaint in writing, which requires usually hiring a professional lawyer and a scribe, And then you have to find some way of submitting it. So, I mean, the evidence for how this actually happens is relatively few and far between. Some of the more anecdotal cases I came across in this archive included people reporting that they had waited outside the gates of Greenwich Palace for Henry VIII to come past. They had actually been able to speak to him and report their complaint, which was, again, a standard complaint against a neighbour about land and that the king had then told them to submit the complaint in writing to at this point Thomas Wolsey who was one of the uh, head of one of the courts in this period so the process is not easy it requires a huge number of steps so we have to do quite a lot of reconciling between the the sort of overture towards poverty and oppression being made in the petition and the obvious resourcefulness required to actually, make and submit a complaint to the king
0: yes and i think that that's a worth uh, that's a useful bit of nuance to be able to unpick because uh, if we just went off of what they said about their poverty uh, that wouldn't necessarily give us the full picture but if we continue the journey of the petition um somehow they've managed to get this knowledge um and all these pieces together to get the petition sort of submitted what happens next? What happens when the petition actually gets to the royal court? And do they always get a response? Do you get a response quickly? What does this bureaucratic process look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is something I was really, really interested to try and reconstruct, and it's hard. I mean, the evidence is not always there. As I said, some of this is anecdotal. So somebody petitions again, and they happen to describe how their petition went last time, for example. But what I think we can be relatively sure of is that once a written petition is sort of in the vicinity of the royal household, you know, around the kind of men who are doing this work, and I should say these are these are the sort of king's attendants, they're the members of his chapel royal, there. they're often some of his closest ministers, so they're with him. And we can be fairly sure that petitioners managed to get these documents into these men's hands somehow, whether that was from their own hand or through a messenger, it's hard to say. But what we do have on these petitions on the reverse side is usually some kind of initial order for process. And very often this is at least signed, but sometimes written by one of these men. So occasionally you do find the signature of Thomas Wolsey or the signature of another judge we know worked in this court. So there's sort of possibly a face-to-face encounter here. And the very first thing that these judges would do was usually order the person accused in the petition to attend the court. So they would order what we call a sort of privy seal writ, a summons, essentially. They would get this ordered through the relevant bureaucratic channels. They would get the clerks to write it up. It would be stamped with the king's privy seal and it would be sent out by a messenger who would try to find this person who had been accused. Now, I found a lot of really great cases in the court's order books about how people would run away on the site of the messenger. or They would, you know, just not be found anywhere. So that could be quite a tricky process. But if it all went relatively seamlessly, this could be pretty quick. I mean, my sense was petitions were dealt with as soon as they arrived. There was no sort of one day of the week for this work. It seems to have been happening ad hoc. Um, And so, you know, and then the defendant would be ordered to appear usually within, you know, a week or so. So you can see how the process is pretty, pretty quick, It's pretty speedy. You're not having always to wait until the next legal term. And it's also going on outside of legal terms a lot of the time, all year round, any day of the week. So it's a pretty quick process, you would hope, as long as the defendant actually turns up. But they're under a pretty... High financial penalty if they don't turn up. So, most of the time, if this all went well, the defendant would then have to appear and make some kind of answer before the court, and they wouldn't be allowed to leave until they had written up an answer. So, some of this process could be sort of done and dusted within a, a sort of legal term, if you like, a sort of four to six weeks. So, surprisingly quick, which is really what made this such an appealing jurisdiction. I think, at this time. Yeah, I
0: mean, that's faster than you can get a lot of bureaucratic things done today. And we've got the internet and all manner <laughs> of technology that was not available then. So in a lot of ways, that sounds like, as you said, a very appealing system, um, a very, you know, I could see why people would go for it. And yet you talk about in the book that the court does get criticism, does face critique. So what was the, that sort of, what, what were they talking about in mm-hmm. those instances? And did this impact the court at all?
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about all the ways in which this is a fantastic jurisdiction for petitioners. But imagine being a defendant in this court. You know, you are going about your business on the high street or in the market and you receive this piece of paper demanding your appearance or usually all the way down in Westminster at the very least all the way down in the Thames Valley or wherever the king happens to be you know within a week I mean it's all very well and good if you're making the complaint but if you are the person being accused this is quite a significant uh, burden And that's the kind of complaint that emerges almost immediately. I mean, it's already being voiced in the Royal Council and its main meetings in Parliament by the sort of late 15th century, this feeling that the process of the king's privy seal writ, which is the sort of procedure under which this is happening, that this is all a little bit arbitrary and that there needs to be some kind of system in place to check abuse of this system you know, to stop people from trying to have their their kind of number one enemy called into the King's Council just in order to sort of vex him, just in order to kind of put him out. And so even by the late 15th century, Parliament is already kind of talking about um, mechanisms by which, for example, they might say, if the bill turns out not to be true, if the complaint turns out not to be true, then the, the petitioner is going to have to, you know, put up some kind of recompense for the defendant for their time and effort having to come all the way to the council. So they're already trying to think about ways to protect the defendant. And there's very much a sense that where the common law in general protects somebody accused at law, gives them a fair trial, for example. And we're thinking about an idea that is enshrined in Magna Carta here, that you should be able to have a fair trial by peers, for example that this kind of jurisdiction operates outside of those norms. It prioritises the petitioner and actually puts quite a great financial and burden of proof as well upon the defendant. Um, so that's one of the lines of criticism that continues for a while. And really, the court does not do a huge amount to to address that. I mean, it's always been complained about all the way through into the into the 16th century. But, you know, eventually the court does develop a system in which any winning party can claim sort of fees back from their opponents. So there are systems to kind of try and make it worth somebody's while. Another complaint that they have to contend with in the early 16th century goes back to this idea of what even is justice and how should justice be done? And that is that, a lot of the men working in the Court of Requests, especially, but also in Chancery, also in Star Chamber, that these men are they're clergymen. They're often trained in theology, but they're not usually lawyers by any stretch of the imagination. They're doing judicial work. They're deploying their consciences to sort of decide between two you know, disputing parties, but they're not operating on any kind of legal precedent. I mean, these courts... Don't operate on any kind of legal precedent. They're there to mediate between parties, really. But nonetheless, this becomes a little bit of a concern, especially as you can imagine among legal circles. So you know, high-ranking common lawyers are complaining about this. Now, the the classic target of this is Thomas Wolsey. Um, part of the complaint against him at his fall in fifteen twenty-nine is that. His work in some of these courts, not requests, but the some of the other courts like it, um, has been arbitrary, and he doesn't really have any right to do this. But I found that you know the court of requests and its judges received similar complaints about the same thing. So every now and again, you come across um, reports of you know, losing parties in the court of request saying, I'm not paying attention to that decree because it was made by some random priest and he doesn't really have any authority in this. So you really do start to feel that defendants, not just kind of lawyers in the inns of court, but defendants on the ground are aware that there is a little bit of a question mark over the legal authority, not of the king but of the the men doing justice in his name because they're not lawyers. And the impact of that kind of pushback is that increasingly in the 16th century, although clergymen are there, we start to see this sort of um group of officers called the masters of requests who are effectively, they start to be in charge of receiving petitions and they are usually lawyers. So there is increasingly a sort of more professional bench in requests. And I think that that is a response to some of that criticism.
0: Hmm. Yeah, no, that that definitely makes sense, Um, both that there would be critique on that front and kind of how the response um, might come from it. Speaking actually of that side, of the kind of decision-making side of things, can you tell us a bit about the decrees that were made in response to petitions and what we can learn from examining
1: them? Yeah, I mean, what is really, again, another wonderful thing about working with this court in particular is that unlike other similar courts for this time, so Star Chamber, whose records um, are now lost for this part of the process, and the Court of Chancery, which didn't keep records for this part of the process until later in the 16th century, the Court of Requests has, from the 1490s onwards, a pretty comprehensive series of the decisions it's making, and that includes final decrees. So it's actual judgment in these matters. Um, and they can tell us a lot. I mean, they're in English, which makes them very easy to study for a lot of this period. They're sometimes quite formulaic, but they become increasingly, as we go through the period I'm working on, longer and more elaborate. Um, they can tell us what sort of evidence the court is prioritizing. So in, in actually making a judgment, they tell us, you know, we've considered the answer of the defendant or we've considered the um, testimonies of witnesses called in for this case, or we've examined this um, land deed or something like that. So you'd get a sense of what they're actually basing their decision on. It's quite brief, but it's there. You also get the sense, especially when you have the petition to compare to the decree, that they're kind of simplifying the case. So I've already kind of talked about how you know, when you make a petition to this court, it's really in your best interest to amp up this claim that You know, you you literally cannot get out from under this kind of oppressive neighbour or, you know, your opponent is particularly vexatious and troublesome. And often, you know, historians in in this field often talk about legal fictions, which is the idea that you might frame what is effectively a dispute about land under this claim of rioting or some kind of physical assault, which we can never tell if it's true or not, but it serves to amplify the case But what these decrees often did is leave all of that out in their kind of summary of the case and just go straight for the meat of the matter, which is, you know, this party says he was granted the land by so-and-so and and this party says that he inherited it from his father and they're clearly at odds with one another. So you can see how they're doing the job of sifting the sort of essential details of a case Um, and they're doing, whether they're lawyers or not, they're doing the work of boiling it down to the actual kind of the issue rather than all of these other actions that are going on between these parties. And they're kind of weighing up written and verbal evidence. It's obviously interesting that they take verbal evidence so seriously, which they do. Um, And we get a sense of the overall ethos of what they're doing. Um, Sometimes it's pretty clear cut that one party is in the right and the other is in the wrong. So, you know, this person's deeds are just forged and they're not correct and it's clearly the the other party that should win these lands and that's all great other times it's not really very clear and in those cases they might aim to do something a little bit more equitable they might aim to split to the lands down the middle or they might aim to say you know this party can have this period of time to reap their crops or whatever and then they have to give the land over so there's a surprising degree of of trying to kind of mediate rather than award one direction or the other. So you learn a lot about how they, how this court considers its kind of role as, as a sort of judicial entity to be. It's not necessarily to make a kind of straightforward, long-lasting award. It's to tell these parties, this is how we see it. And, you know, we we have decided to kind of try to come up with a middle solution. And very often, they also leave the matter open. So you would assume that in an, a jurisdiction, this authoritative that they might say, that's that, we never want to hear about this ever again. And sometimes they did. If parties were really troublesome, they might say, we, we do not want you to come back. This is the end of this case. And you, you shouldn't sue it anywhere else either. But occasionally, or rather more often... They would actually say, until somebody can show us better evidence, this is the way it's going to be. So you really get that sense that they're willing to kind of leave the matter open. They're willing to kind of engage in a dialogue on this matter, which is quite surprising. So so these are all the things that we can learn. What, what are they actually doing? Um, how are they thinking about cases? What kind of justice are they offering? Um, and it's really, really insightful because it's really the only evidence we have for this type of royal justice for this period. And it isn't
0: what we'd expect without this evidence. So Mm. that's what I found really interesting reading this, that if we didn't have these records, we'd probably very much have the wrong picture. Um, So it's so cool that we do have the records and that you've gone and looked at them. uh, And so we can find these things out. So... I just have a few final questions, um, if you will allow it. Uh, Now that we've kind of gone through, I suppose, the life cycle of a petition, where they're coming from, what they're petitioning about. The decrees aren't necessarily always the end of it, though. So you talk a bit about in the book, there are some afterlives of royal decrees. What what are these?
1: Yeah, I mean, this was one of my favourite things, actually, to add into the book. Um, It wasn't part of the PhD thesis. It was sort of a a secondary piece of research. And I'm really glad that we're kind of working through the case in this order because the book was designed to kind of chart the life of a case. But you're right, decrees don't end there. I mean, I've just said sometimes they were not designed to end there, which is important. But let's let's take, you know, a case where the court does rule one way or the other. They do say to, you know, one side of this dispute, the lands are yours and the other party needs to, you know, leave immediately and hand over the kind of tenure and occupation. That did happen. So what would happen after the court had made a decision, all the parties would be called in to hear this decision be made. The parties, their lawyers, would be present to to, to hear the decision. Um, It would be written down onto a separate, so not just in the order books, which I think are actually the copies of the decree. Um, the, the, The original would be written on a separate piece of either paper or parchment. And, you know, that physical document was given to the parties involved, especially to the winning party. It did come at an extra cost, but they would get that piece of paper and it would be endorsed, and by which I mean signed by the judges. And I think it would also be endorsed by the king. That is at least to the sense that I get from sort of later notes about these documents. We don't really have any original surviving ones. But what we do have are reports about what people did with them. So, you know, you would take these home with you to your land, and there were reports of some parties having almost a little sort of land return ceremony. You know, they would get their neighbours and they would get their lawyer and they would bring the decree and they would stand in the land and read it out and make sure that everybody around them heard the terms of the, de- the decree. And this would kind of mark the moment at which this land was kind of passed back in their eyes, obviously, to the correct winning party. Now, this is something that is kind of hard to imagine, but a lot of land transfer went on in this kind of ritualistic way, the handing over of turf or the handing over of uh, you know, a doorknob or something. A lot of this is quite practical and quite physical. And it's interesting that the written royal decree sort of became part of this sort of ritualistic system of land transfer as it existed you know on the ground in the village in the in the locality um, so that's really interesting what, it, what we also know from from sort of notes in these books is that parties hung on to these decrees for a long time. Um, there are references much later in the Elizabethan period to decrees from this period from the 1520s or, or whatever still being in the possession of somebody who won their case or the, the descendants of the person who won that case. So the decrees continued to have a kind of force in the lives of the people who had sought them and won them. That's certainly true. Of course, if you had lost, you might spend, you know, years after trying to kind of appeal it or years trying to overturn it, and the court was quite open to that. But if The matter was relatively closed off. That piece of paper was went on to be very, very important um, and we, we get the sense that it becomes part of the archive that people were starting to collect in this period of all of their deeds and documents relating to their lands. It becomes just one more piece of evidence for their right. So they certainly do have a sort of afterlife outside of that that relatively static record that we now have of them in these, you know, registers or books of decrees. You know they were important to the people who managed to get a hold of them.
0: And thankfully important enough that we we have them we have them as records and you can spend all this time um, analyzing them and helping us understand uh, the, the trajectory the journey of this process. So thank you so much for taking us through that I think it really does kind of illuminate what's happening here in a way that we wouldn't really have access to otherwise. Um, I do have one final question, though, even if it's not necessarily about this book and this big project. It is, of course, done. Uh, People can (laughs) go read the book. It's off your desk. (laughs) So is there anything you might be working on now that it's done, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to
1: preview or highlight? Yeah, I mean, research continues. I mean, it's nice in a sense to close off the work on this archive I mean I've been very lucky that this research project is quite archivally bounded you know once I've seen all the documents and done some of the contextual reading the project has a kind of natural end but I continue to be interested in you know as we've been talking about today the process by which people are actually litigated Um, I'm incredibly interested in how people in this period, you know, and I'm using the term ordinary people, but that, you know, that that's a very general term That that is a bit broad brushstroke. But the extent to which I suppose people without legal knowledge or legal training knew anything about how to find or sue to a court like this one, you know, I've already talked a little bit um, today about the extent to which if you wanted to make a complaint to this court, you had to know where the king was going to be. You had to know who, who to find legal advice from. You had to, had to know a scribe. You had to know how to frame your case. You had to know what evidence you could call up. I think it's easy to, to kind of overlook the extent to which this period was perhaps the most litigious in English history. I think people in this period knew much more inherently about law than we do now. I mean, we've already talked about how, you know, some of these bureaucratic procedures just seem kind of unthinkable, but people knew them quite well, even if they weren't legal professionals. So the next kind of broad project I'm working on is is under the theme of kind of legal literacy. How do people know about law? Where do they hear about law? How do they know how to litigate? What kind of knowledge did you actually need to do so? You know, and some of that is documentary, some of that is about oral culture. Um, And that is not necessarily a book. It's probably a series of much shorter projects at this moment in time. But it includes studying documents that aren't just formal records produced by a court like this one. So something I'm working on at the moment under this um, broader umbrella is um, commonplace books, which are notebooks miscellaneous notebooks usually kept by all manner of obviously literate people but not only lawyers you know people who work on estates or people who require some kind of domestic or household record and I'm interested in the kind of legal material they're putting in those books um, both as a sense of what they could access about law what they were able to kind of see and copy but also in terms of thinking about what they were doing with that legal knowledge. You know, why would you copy a template legal document? And what does that tell us about people's relationship with law? So that's kind of the direction it's going, I suppose, even more social history than this project. But it's certainly in the same ballpark of how does litigation work and how did people know about law? Um, The stakes here being understanding a little bit more about the litigiousness of this period, the growth of the legal system, the growth of things like royal justice. So it's going all the way back down to the other end of the spectrum, I think. You know, I'm, I've been interested in kings on this project, but I'm interested in kind of the other end of the social scale a bit more on this new one.
0: Well, it sounds fascinating. So thank you for that preview. And of course, while you are working on it, um, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Royal Justice and the Making of the Tudor Commonwealth, published by Cambridge University Press. Laura, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you for having me.